0: Welcome to the Oxygen Mask podcast. If you are here as a parent or caregiver, educator, or grandparent, we are glad to have you listening. This program is geared for the autism parent, but we welcome and invite all who feel called to be here with us. I'm Tara, and I'm your co-host, along with my partner, Beth. The title of this podcast, The Oxygen Mask, is based on a metaphor. Just as you are instructed on an airplane to put on your own mask before helping others, We believe we need to practice helping ourselves as parents so we can best help our children. Hi, I'm Beth. At the beginning of each episode, we'll turn that metaphor, that
1: symbol of an oxygen mask, into a concrete practice. Pausing a few minutes each day to quiet our busy minds and breathe into our bellies provides a surge of stress-reducing neurochemicals. With practice over time, we actually build pathways in our brains that help reduce our stress response. So even if you hit play on this podcast about to enter multitasking mode, please take a moment of pause for yourself. Let's begin. Close your eyes softly and bring your attention to your feet as they contact the surface beneath them, rooting you to this moment. Roll your shoulders back. Let them settle in a strong, relaxed posture. Take a belly breath in through your nose, Feel the sensation of air in your nostrils, in the back of your throat. Exhale slowly. Notice your chest fall and your belly soften. Draw another deep breath into your belly. Envision the cool air swirling up across your forehead. Exhale, picturing the warm air going down the back of your neck and over your shoulders. Bring your attention to your face, your temples, your jaw. Take a final cleansing breath in. At the top of your in-breath, bend your elbows and softly place your hands on your hips. Exhale slowly, perhaps letting a smile curl the corners of your mouth. Hold this posture for a few seconds as you open your eyes.
0: Welcome back to The Oxygen Mask in our continuing conversation with Jules Edwards and Milena Bates. Both women are parents of neurodivergent children and also are neurodivergent themselves. They're both admins of a wonderful Facebook group called Autistics and Allies. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Autistics and Allies.
2: It was, um, it actually started because of rejection of autistic people, um, it is a little hard to talk about, to be honest. Um, As an autistic parent of autistic children, I feel like I don't fit in anywhere. So when allistic, allistic means not autistic. (laughs) Um, When allistic parents um, have these support groups a lot of the time, It is framed around the idea of emotional support for the parents unconditionally. And there's not a lot of thought into um, how that impacts autistic parents of autistic children. Um, And there was an occasion where a friend posted something in the group that didn't violate any rules, but the admins didn't like it. So they deleted it. And she's like, what's going on? And I asked for the admins to make sure that all of the rules are written because autistic people do not do well with unwritten rules. Um, There wasn't any argument, just, hey, try to make this group accessible. Um, I was removed from the group. Um, My friend who had posted an article about nutrition in autistic children, um, she was removed from the group. And we started a new space and several, several of our friends came over and I really didn't expect it to become the community that it is today, but I love that it has um, because a lot of these conversations that we have are often very private. Um, in normal um, neuronormative communities, we wouldn't talk about a lot of the stuff we talk about, and um, it is very deliberate that it is in a space where autistic people can see it. It helps bridge that um, double empathy problem. There's a gap where um, there's this perception that autistic people lack empathy. And it's not true. (laughs) And um, there's actually research supporting um, the fact that the empathy problem is double-edged. So autistic people may not always understand non-autistic people and non-autistic people may not always understand autistic people. So by centering autistic experiences, non-autistic people can see like, hey, this is You know, this is what people are really experiencing. This is how they perceive a given situation. And it might help expand that idea of flexibility and empathy with other people. So it's really about improving lives of everyone um, in a way that doesn't harm autistic people.
3: We wanted a space where um, where par- parents would come when they want to learn things, and they're okay with being uncomfortable, and they're okay with being told, "Here's what your kid might be thinking when this happens." It started with just autistic parents of autistic kids, but it's also, but it's um, um we have a lot of people who are not parents. We have a lot of young adults um, and aging um, autistic um, adults, and there's um, there are professionals who join the group. Um,
0: So it's grown into a full blown community. You know, like how did that impact you and what were the things that really um, made it feel so welcoming to you? Like, can you talk a little bit about that sense of community that you found?
3: Um, Well, there's something about um, communicating online that is easier for a lot of neurodivergent people. And um, I, I'm, I'm sorry I can't remember for sure who to credit with this um, with this quote, but I remember hearing at some point that the internet is a prosthetic uh, communication device for um, for people um, with who struggle with social skills or something like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's um, it's no uh, coincidence that the autistic the, that the birth of autistic culture is associated with, accessibility of um, internet, you know? The, the way neurodivergent people interact, we skip all the small talk type stuff and we get right down to the bone, you know? <laughs> uh, we talk about hard stuff right away, like, so that's probably something that contributed to um, finding the community and feeling at home and finding people who were, uh, who didn't think it was weird um, to talk about like the really um, heavy things sometimes definitely um, having an opportunity to um, to spend time in person um, in the live version of that setting um, kind
1: of really cemented that feeling of community There was um, the an autism conference and I loved seeing how it was like a, a reunion of people who had only known each other on Facebook but there were like hugs and hellos and um, I just, and that actually woke me up to just the fact of, like, I think technology and internet-mediated relationships and socializing will be important to my kid. And up to that point, I had just sort of said that doesn't count as friendship. That you know, and so it really helps me see the fullness of what community and relationship kind of looks like. Um,
3: I'm sure you've heard about masking of like when neurodivergent people are in um neuromajority spaces uh we uh we have to follow all the rules and we are um putting in a lot of energy into trying to follow these um complicated algorithms that we almost understand after studying them our whole lives <laughs> and um, and so to be able to just drop all that and to um, just be um you know, not wonder, are they going to think it's weird if I just jump in with this or, you know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to sit in a chair a certain way. You don't have to make eye contact if you don't want to. Um, You can just be quiet for um, the entire time and then jump in with something and then be done talking and people are going to be like, thank you. And they're not going to think it's, you know, (laughs) uh, weird. So it's just, you know, I'm not trying to say that neuromajority spaces are um, deliberately hostile, but they are a very different, um, they're not a natural environment for us. So um, it's just really depleting sometimes to be in those um, spaces where all the rules and social norms have to be followed. So just um, being able to um, be in a space where you don't have to do that is, um, you have more energy to actually interact in a meaningful way, you know?
0: Um, Being in a neuro majority situation just takes a lot more energy to participate in in that realm, the way that you want to, um, or the way that's expected of you. And then um, finding an autistic community where you don't have to go through that. There's a little, there's a little relaxation that happens, right? That's not quite so much energy that you have to put into that. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
3: Yeah, exactly. It's
1: um, it's, it's just more comfortable. This might be too big of a question, but I think about, you know, sometimes I'm in a situation where I'm reminding him of some of the expectations, usually in a, in a situation where we're not with people who know us well, you know what I mean? So like, where's the boundary between essentially teaching your kid patterns that might be unhealthy if you know that they're wired for a different kind of communication style? And and I think about speech as an early intervention strategy that a lot of families go down um, around social communication. Um, Any thoughts on that?
3: Many thoughts. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And um,
3: one thing that I find helpful um, in order to try to make that distinction of um, when am I helping them and when am I forcing them to mask um, in a way that maybe Um, detrimental uh, to their mental health. Not that there's always a clear cut line, um, but usually uh, in most cases you can make the distinction, is it an actual social skill or is it a neuronormative expectation? So for example, um, calling someone on the phone to find information you need, that would be um, a social skill. Um, A neuronormative expectation would be Uh, a script maybe this is what you say in the situation and this is how you behave and um and this is not to say that neuronormative expectations shouldn't be taught and they shouldn't ever be used um i I find found that um growing up um with undiagnosed neurodivergencies it was helpful in a lot of ways to be given scripts in certain situations it's almost like a ritual and especially in things where it's clear cut, it's, it's helpful. Um, as long as you um, make it clear to your kid that if this feels too um, depleting, if you feel like that's too much, you can say, I can't do that today. Or I, I can't do that right now. Some people might think that's, um, you know, coddling or too much, but I think it's really powerful for your kid to be able to say, um, you know, Okay, maybe today I can ask for the kind of ice cream I want and pay the money and things like that. And maybe, maybe one day we already did something this morning, or I didn't get enough sleep. Uh, I need you to do this for me today. I think that's um, it's self advocacy, you know. Saying saying I can't do this today is self advocacy, and I think you should be everyone. We should all be really proud of our kids when they say that. Um, and you know, teach them about masking. Teach them what it is and teach them that it's something that only they can decide if they wanna use or not. You know, it lets you in some spaces that you might otherwise not be able to be in. And by the way, we're working on opening those spaces for you as well, but um, in this world currently, you have to follow some of these things if you wanna be, uh, you know, if you wanna have access and if you wanna be accepted. And I mean, you, you take the cues from your kid. Just don't assume that they're refusing to um, instead of won't, just um, rephrase it into can't, and um, and just remember that one day they may be able to do something, and another day it's just not going to happen. And and it's not their enthusiasm or willingness or obedience or anything like that. It's um, we don't always have access to skills that we possess. Your expectations are um, one of the biggest factors of. Uh, you know, of success and of any process of growth, honestly. And I'm not saying like, don't expect achievement and great things and stuff like that. Just make sure that, that you have reasons that you have evidence that indicates that this is a fair expectation.
1: I love that. I feel like for me, the can't versus won't was a huge parental learning distinction that changed the way I relate with my kid and, um, and then for you to say that unevenness of access to those skills over time. But I can notice the pattern and just sort of remind myself that, yeah, there's unevenness here. And that is part of my expectation <laughs> instead of expecting evenness and predictability of, um, of, of, of what he can and can't accomplish any, any given time. Jules, do you want to jump in on any of this? Did this bring up some things for you? Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. Um, So
2: the splinter skills are, you know, really recognizable as a trait of autism. So a person can be, you know, really independent in one area and need significant supports in another area, but it's not really recognized the fluidity of abilities from day to day or even hour to hour. Um, And something that I've noticed quite a bit is the expectation that somebody can consistently complete the same thing at all periods of time. And um, it's really interesting how I've observed and I've noticed other parents observe in their own children that when a child is mastering a new skill, um, some of those skills that they'd already learned go in the back burner. So it may look like a regression, um, but a lot of those time, a lot of the time um, those skills will come back after the new skill is mastered. So if, for example, a younger child is working on language and um, toilet training, because these are just a few um, things that children may be learning at the same time. Um, the child may lose some words or the ability to communicate in a certain way when they're focusing so hard on another skill. So they're learning how to use the toilet. Well, the language is gone for a week or two um, or vice versa. I noticed that with one of my children, um, toileting was something that would, you know, ebb and flow as the child was mastering new skills. And that was okay. and I think that there's this perception that it can't be okay, and, but why? Why can't that be okay? Um, and I think that there's also this really awful misperception about neurodiversity, that it means that um, people with um, neurodivergent conditions are, you know, they're perfect. It's um, sunshine and roses and rainbows and butterflies and they don't need any help. That's not what neurodiversity means. Neurodiversity means that people come in all kinds of different ways of being and everybody has a right to the support they need in order to be happy and successful. And it's not about changing the person so much as making sure that person has access to the supports that they need. Um, And that's gonna be different for everyone.
0: so let's talk about language. I've always led with first person language, right? Person first language. Um, because I thought that was the 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 best way to go about it, right? And and I still kind of default to that at the moment um, just because my son hasn't told me he wants to talk about actually he doesn't want to talk about it ever so I don't really even bring it up but I still kind of um go with first person language but when I went through the LEND program I had heard from other um, autistic adults why is it important for you to use the term autistic adult or my autistic child why is that your preference
2: for me it's a descriptor it's an adjective it's just part of who I am just like I have brown hair um I'm a brunette I am diabetic. I am a lot of different things. Um, But when somebody says I'm a person with autism, it, um, it makes me feel gross. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's the, the first reason. Um, But autism is not a handbag that I can set down. Um, It, I don't live with autism. It doesn't pay rent here. Um, Autism is just part of who I am. It needs to be normalized. And when we act like autism is, um, it needs to be euphemized. I don't know if that's even a real word, but when we say somebody is on the spectrum or they're living with autism or any other euphemism that is meant to distance the person from autism, it brings stigma, whether it's intentional or not. Um, and I know that different communities and different people even have different preferences, um, but the community overall has expressed a preference for identity first language. And because the community says this is what we prefer, that should be the default. And then when we have somebody who prefers a person with autism, then we defer to that person's preferences. Um, But I've noticed that we have a lot of things backwards. So the ideal is um, people choose the language that they want for themselves and um, people should have person-centered services and care and everything should be about that individual's preferences and values and goals, et cetera. Um, But that's not how things actually work. And... um, a lot of the time, it is non-autistic people telling us, no, it's person with autism. And I'm like, don't tell me how to identify myself. And it's been funny, too, because there have been times that I've said, I'm an autistic mother of autistic children. And someone tried to correct me and say, no, you're an autism mom with children with autism. And I'm like, why would I say that? And why do you have a right as a non-autistic person to identity first language? And I don't. Like, why do you get the easy word, and we're the ones who supposedly struggle with language? You get autism, mom, but I have to be a person with autism. That's not nice.
0: <laughs> why would I want that? Um, See, this is why I wanted to talk about it because it like flipped the whole script in my head. You know, here I thought, okay, I'm doing the right thing, and then I was like, encountered folks like y- you that it, you know, um, showed me differently, and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so you really explained it well. Melina, did you want to jump in there with anything? Because the way to be looked at as people, we had to be separated from our disability
3: because that was the only way to um, humanize us because it was too much for the society to, um, you know, to, to wrap their head around disability not being a bad thing because it's a, it's a given that disability is a tragedy and that it's a bad thing. So then in order to say, but this person is lovable and um, were, you know, has inherent worth, they essentially had, this is just my uh, anthropological theory. <laughs> I have I love it. Of- <laughs> I love it, keep going. <laughs> so, you know, um, so that's why um, I think that could be part of the reason, but, you know, don't be hard on yourself for having difficulty changing habits, you know, I would also like to invite anyone who is uncomfortable with saying autistic or disabled to really ask themselves this, themselves, why. Uh, why that makes them uncomfortable. Is it, is, it a neg- is it because you think it's a negative thing? Then that's something to unpack further, you know? Um, and then, you know, sometimes you might find out, well, rationally, I know that it's not a negative thing, but maybe I was cultured for too long And maybe I'm having trouble rejecting these ideas, you know, just like um, in other ways, like, um, you know, anti-racist activism and feminism and, you know, um, all this other and LGBTQ stuff, you know.
1: Melena and Jules, I feel like you both have kind of called out maybe one of my last, um, not last stands of acculturation that have, because I do, I feel like autistic sounds like I'm sticking a label on my kid. And and I think it's only because it sounds too assertive. It sounds too direct or something. And if that is, and <laughs> Jules, you're throwing up your hands over there. <laughs> Tell me, what what do you want to say to that?
2: Well, autistic people are direct, but, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that that's um, you know, we're often framed as being rude or something like that. Um, when we're usually pretty direct in our communication. Um. So yeah, that's <laughs> helpful.
1: Also, yeah,
2: but I also understand. You know, there's um, a lot of ableism and people may not even recognize it in themselves Um, because there's also this backlash of the term disabled. Um, A lot of people are really uncomfortable with the word disabled. So people will come up with the most creative euphemisms like diffability with an F in the middle or differently abled or something like that. There is no Americans with disabilities act. So by taking away our language, you're taking away our rights, you're taking away our empowerment, you're taking away our power as people. And we don't want that. And I don't think that parents should want that or anybody else. Um, So when we say that we're autistic, then just use the language that we choose. And I think that it's also, Not recognized so well that if children aren't connected to the culture or other people who share their diagnosis, they're going to have a really hard time understanding where they fit in. They may not have exposure to the idea that, hey, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. A lot of children are taught from the beginning of their diagnosis until adulthood That autism is bad and you shouldn't want to be autistic. You should do what you can to recover or change or hide it or not meet the diagnostic criteria anymore. And those people are being deprived of access to their community. And that hurts them.
0: I want to follow up with that too, Jules, about, because um, I think this is a question that a lot of parents have, and, and I think you'll have unique perspective on this, but um, like when to tell your child, you know, like if they, how do you introduce that? Tell them right away.
2: <laughs> tell
0: That's them. Right. Norm-
2: so I thought you'd say, <laughs> yeah, let them know because otherwise they're going to go through life wondering what is wrong with me when there's nothing wrong with them and they may need support. And how are they supposed to ask for support if they don't know what kind of support they need? How are they supposed to advocate for themselves if they don't have the language to describe what they're having a hard time with? And then there are autistic adults who were never told that they were autistic as a child and they get to adulthood and they are furious with their parents for not telling them. They're furious and they're angry because they needed support and they couldn't ask for it because they didn't know how. Um, And that is unfortunately a common scenario, but also teach your children to be prideful of who they are. Like that autism is not something to be ashamed of. And when when we perpetuate this idea that autism needs to be hidden, it teaches your children to feel shameful.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, I think there's there's folks that um, will need need to hear that. So thank you.
1: And it doesn't need to be some huge reveal. Like this isn't a cut a cupcake open and see if it has
0: a, <laughs> a rainbow inside, or, right? Or, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly, or something. Um, but I feel like what well, what we've done is trickle in this conversation and um, in the in embedded in strengths and challenges, and then describing some of the, those, you know. Some of these struggles are are part of what autism is, and some of the strengths are also part of what autism is.
2: Yeah, um, when all of my children know their diagnosis, um, my youngest is seven, so she doesn't really have a full understanding of what it is. But when she asks, and she asks regular, regularly, what is autism? I'll describe it in terms that relate to her actual life. So I'll say. You know how you really like to spin? Do you know how you really like to jump and flap and crash? That's because you need to regulate your sensory system. And um, I'll talk to her about, you know how it's hard for you to speak sometimes? That happens for a lot of autistic people. They have a hard time putting words out. And that's okay. There are other ways you can communicate or you can wait. Um, another way I've described it is, um, you know, how it's hard to approach other children at the playground, even though you want to play, it's hard for you to know what to say. That's part of autism sometimes. And when they understand how it relates to them, it helps them understand, um, that they're not alone because it can feel really lonely if you don't know other people who are struggling with the same things.
0: Um, Okay, so one last takeaway that you want to leave parents with. Um, uh, Milena, do you want to start? Um, Just play with flipping
3: things around. For example, um, I think empathy and rigidity are two really good ways to practice this. Um, A lot of the time um, we assume that um, that um, the other person doesn't um, get or under get how we feel or understand how we think. And then um, think about do you really understand how they think and do you, um, you know, can you detect how they feel? And um, it's just a good exercise, I think in general. And um, and the other thing is about uh, rigidity. It's one of my recent sort of soapbox topics. Autistic people who are always, I would say accused it sounds a little dramatic but I think it's accurate accused of being um, rigid Um, they are continuously being made to um, follow really rigid social expectations themselves so like the expectations of the autistic people um, I think most of the time are a lot more rigid than the autistic people person's behavior which usually has a, a reason and sensory or adjustments.
0: I love that. It's kind of like, hey, um, where's the rigidity lie? (laughs) Like, Be questioning that. That's a really good point. Jules, do you have something you want to add here?
2: I guess I have kind of two final thoughts. Um, My first is that accessible communication is a human right. And we don't talk about that a whole lot. But there is a huge cultural problem with prioritizing mouth words. And if a person communicates with AAC, which is um, augmentative or alternative communication, or if a person communicates best by writing or gesturing or with behavior, all of those forms of communication need to be recognized as valid. and we don't need to push people to speak with mouth words all of the time. Um, and some people can't, and that is okay. And those people have a right to accessible communication. It is a human right. It is not a a wish, <laughs> it is an established right. And we are depriving children of language um, by not making sure they have access to communication tools. And the other is that World Autism Day is a cake and presents day. So every year on World Autism Day, I think that parents should give their children cake and presents, like a stimmy tool, um, fidgets, etc. Because these children and autistic people are living lives where they are receiving messages that they are inferior and why not celebrate who they are?
0: That's it, I'm, I'm going out to buy cake, I any reason for cake. I just have to thank both of you so much for this conversation, it's been so um, insightful and I just value your perspectives. And um, the information that you've brought up and the the things that you're going to give people to think about, um, it's just so valuable. It's the kind of conversation I wish I had had when my son was first diagnosed, because I think it would have saved me a lot of uh, worry and anguish. So um, I appreciate your voices here today. And thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, both of you, Melina and Jules. And happy World Autism Day today, uh, April 2nd. Thanks everyone for listening. We will have a lot of good stuff in the show notes, so check those out and you can find out um, how to find autistics and allies on
0: Facebook as well. You can comment and subscribe to the podcast at Communities Engaging Autism's website at www.cea4. That's the number four, autism.org share the podcast with members of your village to strengthen those essential connections and above all please secure your own oxygen mask before helping others